0: Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Again, we're in the 10th chapter of the book of Romans. And if you remember last Sunday, the illustration that I used last week about you know using the GPS or the maps the maps app on your phone, uh, how many of you this week, after hearing me use that illustration, you said, you know what, I got to just open up my maps app and I got to try this out. I mean, how many of you just said, you know, you were so convicted by the service, you got to do this. Okay, how many of you actually use a GPS? One person. To, when you go on a trip, when you go on, obviously going through Lexington, you probably don't need it. You know the roads backwards and forwards. Um, how many of you just go out there and say, "I'm just going to go wherever the good Lord takes me." Right? That's not smart. That's not, that's not what God's there for, okay? Uh, we're talking about God directing your path. We're not talking about getting you to the Kroger, okay? Uh, he, he trusts that you can use the devices that have been given, right? But, you know, we talked about how when you use your map app or when you use your GPS, you type in the destination you want to go to, and it shows you that overview screen, that zoomed out, that point A to point B, right? So if you're going all the way to the, if you're driving all the way up to Seattle, right, you're going to see from, from your house all the way to Seattle, and it's going to be a zoomed out, just line across the continent of the United States, right? If you say, I want to drive from here to Hawaii, it's going to look at you and say, you need to go to geography class, because you can't do that, right? Or it's going to say, drive over to LA, get on a submarine or a boat, and go on there, okay? Um, Or a plane. So, but but, but then when you say, okay, I'm ready to go, and you hit go, what happens? It zooms down into that more detailed view, that here's the first turn, here's the next turn you take, and you see all the streets that are surrounding you kind of come to view, and everything everything, and you get that more detailed view. Well, last Sunday, we took that overview, that that full-on helicopter, eye-in-the-sky view of chapter 10, and looked at it from a, general, uh, from a general side, and then this Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of drill down and look at a very detailed view, and it really is that first turn when it comes to the gospel, and when it comes to understanding the gospel and what we need to do with it. So, um, last Sunday, and, and the past couple of weeks, we've been dealing with this section, chapter nine through eleven, which is kind of its own section, where Paul is dealing with the nation of Israel, the people uh, of God's chosen people. That ultimately, and what Paul is dealing with and wrestling with and and shedding tears over and heartbroken over, is that they have by and large rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. We apply that to our context today as the church in 2002 and as as Gentiles, we apply that to our context today in looking at a lost world who does not yet know they need Christ or has heard the message of Christ and said, I don't want it. They have rejected Jesus as the Messiah as well. And I'm challenged by Paul's heart for his countrymen and his countrywomen who, who had turned their back on Jesus. I'm I'm challenged by that because I wonder sometimes, do I have that type of burning passion for my brother, for for my fellow people living in Lexington and and those living in 40503 right around the church? Do I have that burning desire that I shed tears and that my heartfelt prayers for their salvation, for them to see Jesus for who he is? And so that's a challenge that we all can take. And we saw last Sunday, what, what, what must we do with the gospel? Chapter 9, we looked at, are there holes in the gospel? Where, where we dealt with that mystery of, of, of predestination, of election, and what all was going on in chapter 9. And we answered that question, are there holes in the gospel? No, there are not holes in the gospel. Jesus came and he is able to save anyone and all who will ask for salvation. Does he know who's going to ask? Yes, because he's omniscient but does he give us the opportunity to trust him? Yes, he does. But in chapter 10, we saw what do we do with the gospel? We saw that we have to allow the gospel to provoke us. That challenge, does the gospel and the urgency of the gospel and the fact that the majority of people today are dying without the knowledge of Jesus Christ and dying and going to an eternal hell, never for that to be revoked again, does that burden us? And then we said we have to make sure that the gospel is always Christ-centered. If Christ is not the center of the gospel, it's not the gospel. It's not good news unless the good Savior is part of the, is, is the message. And today we can't settle for preaching a gospel that waters down Jesus or minimizes Jesus or takes Jesus out of the equation because Jesus is the gospel. We have to see that we us preach the gospel and that we have to repeat the gospel. And why? Because we must receive the gospel. The gospel must be received. The message of salvation and hope, we must come to Jesus and call on him to be our savior. And so today we're going to zoom in on verses 8 through 13 this morning and answer that question today because this is the next question that comes up. After we saw that we have to preach the gospel, keep it about Jesus, and we have to receive the gospel, the next question is, well, how do I receive it? It dawned on me that we're almost halfway through this book on the gospel and really haven't presented the simple plan of salvation, how to receive the gospel. Because the last thing we want this to be is just a buzzword in our church that people come and they can hear the word, the gospel, and they can hear it preached but not know how to receive it. So today is going to seem like a very remedial elementary style message. But it's the old, old story that we have to hear over and over and over again. So let's look at verse number eight. Paul says later, about midway in the verse, he says, this message is near to you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart. What that means is God does not want the gospel to be a mystery. God does not want salvation and the path to heaven to be a mystery to anyone. He doesn't want anyone dying and at the end of the day saying, I just didn't know. No one told me. This is the message of faith that we proclaim If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. I'm going to read that again because we need to get this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek or the Jew and the Gentile. Because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Let's read that verse again out loud. Verse number 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is one of the most beautiful promises in all of scripture. That if you will call in the name of Jesus, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that you would help me as your messenger to hide behind the cross. I pray that you would help me collect my, my thoughts. But most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would help me to convey yours today. I pray this morning that as the gospel goes forth, that it would not return void. I pray if there's somebody here under the sound of my voice in this room or on Facebook or YouTube or on the podcast, whoever is hearing this message right now, Lord, that you would meet us with conviction to ask ourselves this question: Have I received the gospel? Do I know Jesus as my Savior? I pray that that would be the case. If it's not right now, that it would be the case by the time this is over. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. And the church said, amen. amen. So today we're answering this question. How do I or how does one receive the gospel? See, because if the gospel message is so important and it's vital to humanity and the gospel message must be received in order for humanity to be saved, we have to ask ourselves and we really have to focus in on this point. How do I receive the gospel? What does God ask me to do in order to be saved? And like I said, this is going to sound like a basic entry-level kind of question, but it's a question that must be repeated over and over and over again because repetition is the key to learning. Repetition is what keeps that focus before us. If the gospel message and if the great commission is the great command of heaven, it needs to be the great focus on our heart. An article I, I, I read this week, Stated that around the time that you're getting tired as a preacher of conveying a certain message to your congregation is usually right about the time that your congregation is beginning to actually receive it, because repetition is the key to learning. As a parent, you know this, right? How many times do you have to say the same thing over and 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 over again, right? Parents, parents, with me? How many times do you feel like you just needed to record yourself and just hit repeat all the time, right? No, we don't leave stuff out on the kitchen counter because that's how we get ants. No, we don't leave our clothes lying on the floor because that's how we trip over them in the middle of the night when we try to go to the restroom. No, we don't leave our toys on the floor because that's how daddy loses his testimony walking across the floor when it's dark, right? That's what we don't do, right? We repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, right? The message of the gospel is one that bears repeating over and over and over again. And let me say this, church. If you, have, if you say, I'm a Christian, I've received the gospel, let me tell you this. You still need to repeat the gospel to yourself over and over and over again because it reminds us of this, that I was lost and I bring nothing to the table, but Jesus is everything to me. It reminds us of where we stand with God, that he loves us when we were unlovable, that he sent his only son for us, and it should fuel our passion to share that message with the lost and dying world. Unfortunately, even in the church today, we're a little fuzzy on how we receive the gospel. We know the word, we hear the word. I've probably said it already about 20 times in this message. You're probably thinking, I'm tired of hearing that word. But we still don't get it. A survey that I read this, this, this week was in the same, the same article that I read, uh, that line that I showed you about, about uh, understanding and repetition just a minute ago. It was from a, a survey done by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And it found this. It found that the majority of American Christians don't actually understand the gospel that they preach. It's because the results showed that a plurality of 48% of Christian adults hold to a salvation can be earned approach to the gospel. A works-based salvation. They believe that Jesus is important, but that if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their life, then that will earn them a place in heaven. Only one-third of adults, 35% of adults, disagree with that and say that it all rests on Jesus and his grace. The survey went a little deeper in its analysis and it got even scarier. A majority of Americans who describe themselves as Christian, 52%, also accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance, meaning that even those associated with churches whose official doctrine says that eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and his work upon the cross to redeem us, that almost half of all adults associate with Pentecostal, meaning 46% of those, mainline Protestant, 44%, evangelical, 41%, all of them and nearly two-thirds of Catholics, 70% hold the view That Jesus must save me, but I must maintain my salvation through good works. While about 65% of American adults describe themselves as as Christians, only about half of them, 54%, believe that they will experience heaven after they die. Catch that. 64% of people in church today say, I have prayed to ask Jesus to be my savior. And of those, 54% of them say, I still don't know if I'm going to go to heaven or not. Only one-third of adults, 33%, believe they will go to heaven solely because they've confessed their sins and they've embraced Jesus as their Savior. That means that for every three people in here, two of you, if statistics are true, two of you think, I've got to figure out a way to heaven other than Jesus. Another one in five expecting to experience heaven are counting on earning their way in or because they embrace something that is called universalism, the idea that God is so good that he'll just let anybody into heaven. What this survey shows, and this was a survey done of all people who attend church regularly, who call themselves Christians, that even those within the church, even those who are people of the gospel, we don't truly get the gospel that we're preaching. So we have to understand how do I receive the gospel and what does it mean for me to receive the gospel? It means that the church, by and large, though it claims to preach the gospel far, wide, and deep, the majority are still not truly getting it. And this is an alarming conclusion that was drawn by the center that produced the survey. He said this, if the gospel message is that salvation can only be provided by the work of Christ and by no one else, and if it can only be obtained by placing 100% faith in his saving work and not by our good works or our good merit, then this survey shows that too many Christians aren't actually Christians at all. They're not even relying on the finished work of Christ, but they're trusting in their own works and that those works will be judged worthy by a holy God. Now, folks, I want to say this, and I want to say this clearly. God forbid that that would be the case here at Graceway, that that would be the gospel that we say. My prayer is that anyone who comes through these doors or hears a message here knows completely that it is not us. That it is not you or me that can get to heaven. It is by God's grace and through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross that we can have salvation. It is a gift. It is not of our righteousness. It is not of our works. It is by grace through faith in Jesus. Plus nothing, minus nothing. See, last week we saw, and this is something that as a preacher, this haunts me because we saw that the gospel is a powerful message. The Bible tells us that the gospel message, they use the Greek word dunamis, which means it's dynamite power. Which means it doesn't have to have power on its own. All the power is possessed inside the message, right? And the possibility that I could preach this beautiful, earth-shattering, life-changing message and people still not understand it, it sobers me. So Today, I want to repeat that old, old story again. I want to make sure that we get this. And I want to make sure today that if you're holding on to anything but Jesus... If you're holding on to Jesus and something else that you learn, you need to let go of all of it and hold on to Christ and in Christ alone. So this morning I want to look at how do we receive the gospel because we cannot settle for being people that have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, like it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I love this, that salvation is not attained by us. It is offered by Jesus. It's not gained by climbing or scraping to a favored position with God. Salvation is only available because Jesus descended from heaven and he condescended to us. He put on human flesh and he allowed himself to be killed and then he resurrected from the grave. To put it simply like the old song says, when I could not go to where he was, he came to me. This is salvation. This is the gospel. So this morning, I want to look at this. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 8, the beginning of our text, it says the message is near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. The message is simple and it should not be misunderstood. It should not easily be misunderstood. We possess everything within us already to understand this simple message of the gospel. And the Bible says, church, this is the message of faith that we must proclaim. And the first thing that we see is If I'm going to receive the gospel, then what I must do is I must confess that Jesus is Lord. To receive the gospel, to accept Jesus Christ as Savior means that I must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We hear that phrase and we say that phrase a lot, but what does it actually mean? What does the Bible tell us this means about Jesus and what it means when it comes to receiving the gospel? Look again at verse number nine of our text. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ is required if we are to receive and respond to the gospel. If we're to be saved, we have to wrestle with Jesus. We have to respect and come to a place where we reckon with Jesus Christ. Salvation that is absent of Jesus is not salvation. It's not. We have to remember that confession and lordship at this point in the context of our verse, in the, in, 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 the, in the historical context of who Paul was writing to primarily here in Romans, he was writing to believers, Jewish believers specifically in Rome at this point, And he was dealing with the fact that Israel had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So for a Jewish reader reading this saying, how do I get saved? And he says, you have to confess that Jesus is Lord. That punched them in the gut of tradition. That told them that they were headed for a different kind of life if they make this confession. You see, this is the importance of lordship. That word Lord is very, very important. And the Bible tells us many times that we should not take the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in vain. And sometimes we find ourselves saying, oh Lord, I don't know. You know, we just, that's, we, it rolls off our tongue a lot of times and we forget the significance of, of that title, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that word Lord there in the Greek, it means kurios. It's the, it's the uh, I was about to say the British translation. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which was the holiest form of God. The way somebody could say the word God. It, it, it detailed his sovereignty, his power, his deity, his holiness. Yahweh it basically embodies everything that God is that we can never be on our own. And so when we say Jesus is Lord and we confess, as we come to him, we say, Jesus, I I confess you as Lord of my life. We're saying, I surrender control to you. I give it all to you. And for the Jewish reader, for them to do that, it meant a lot of different things. See, because this was the very thing that the Pharisees hated Jesus for. This was the very thing that got Jesus crucified by the Pharisees because he preached that he was God, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. And the Pharisees said, you are not the Messiah and this is heresy and we kill heretics around here. So for a Jewish person to say that Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the same as Yahweh, it was heresy as well. And they knew that it would mean a departure from my faith and what I had been taught my whole life. And they knew that it would possibly be a departure from their family and also as people that were living under Roman rule and Roman oppression. You see, Jesus wasn't just crucified by the Jews. He was crucified by the Romans as well. And why did the Romans get in on the crucifixion and conviction of Jesus? Because they saw Jesus as a threat. They saw Jesus as a rabble rouser. They saw Jesus as saying that he was worth more than Caesar you see what you didn't do when you were living under Roman oppression is you didn't say anything negative about Caesar And you didn't attribute your loyalty to anyone other than Caesar Caesar was your God Caesar was your reason for existence And so when Jesus said no, I'm God give Caesar what belongs to him, but give God what belongs to God That caused the problem And so they crucified Jesus the Jews crucified Jesus for heresy and the Romans crucified Jesus for treason And so for a person to say, I confess Jesus as Lord in those days, it was an act of heresy and an act of treason. That's a lot more than today's message where we say, if you want to go to heaven, why don't you pray this prayer and you can go. See, confessing Jesus as Lord means surrendering my will, surrendering everything that I am to everything that Jesus wants me to be and wants to make me to be. So to receive the gospel, we must be ready To serve Jesus. We must be ready to follow him. But sometimes we struggle with that, right? So what does that mean for me? A Gentile in 2022 where I'm not under empirical oppression. And I'm not coming from this this system of faith that denies Jesus. Confessing Jesus as Lord is still a struggle for us, right? The survey that I shared a little while ago shows that. We still struggle with the idea that Jesus can do it all that can do all the work in salvation, and we don't do it. We still struggle with the idea that got Jesus can save me, but i got to keep myself saved. We still struggle with the idea that that person, man, there's no way that they could ever be saved. They're too far gone. We still struggle with those ideas. We struggle with faith that Jesus is real. There's a great number of people today becoming disillusioned from that. I don't know where I stand with God, I don't know what, I don't know if all this stuff that I've invested my faith in is actually panning out to be what all the promises said it would be. So this is our struggle. Confessing Jesus is Lord, do we still believe that he is Lord? In a culture of humanism and in a culture of autonomy, the only true loyalty that we're to have today is to ourselves, right? Right? to our own happiness, to be my authentic self. And anyone that says that I'm not who I am is hateful or trying to oppress me. The only true Lord of my life should be me. And the only true measure of whether I'm being authentic is that I feel good at all times. And this is just a really PC way of masking what's going on. A total surrender to the authority of our flesh when the Bible says that it is sinful flesh that leads to death, that it is Jesus that leads to life. So we must surrender the lordship of my life over to Jesus Christ. So when I receive the gospel, I confess that Jesus is Lord. You see, some people think that Jesus' saviorship and his lordship are two different things. Like, I confess Jesus as my savior, I'm gonna get saved, and then later on, I make him the Lord of my life. Like, I, I grow into that. And I see that's a part of sanctification, and as we grow, we give more of ourselves, and we learn more of what God wants of us, and we learn more of holiness and those things, and we're shaped in his image. But at the moment we come to Christ, we still have to have that idea I'm lost and undone without Jesus. He is my only hope. He is my only hope. And that belief that Jesus is my only hope. And if it is not for Jesus, I am lost and I am undone. This is a one-stop shop. His saviorship and his lordship. Salvation comes to those who understand that they must surrender all of themselves to Christ. Surrender to his work on the cross that he's enough to cover my sins and secure me for eternity. I must surrender to his ability to save me. That he is keeping me saved despite of myself. And I must surrender to his authority that he alone is worthy of my praise, my honor, my respect, and my service. See, confessing that Jesus is Lord is the embodiment of this hymn that was written in India in 1950. You probably know this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided. Then it goes on to say, The world behind me, the cross before me, and if none go with me, I still will follow. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. This is confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So in order to receive the gospel, I must confess Jesus is Lord. And next, in order to receive the gospel, I must believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Look at verse number 11. Look at verses 10 and 11, actually. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, which results in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Because the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. He says, first and foremost, believe in your heart. This is the first thing that we have to deal with. This is a belief that comes from our heart. You say, hold on, I thought you said confession was first. No, verse number nine leads with confession, but it's built upon what happens in verses 10 and 11. You see, because I can't confess something that I don't truly believe. Right? I don't declare something with my mouth that doesn't first take form with inside of who I am. See, it's the faith of the heart that generates the confession that Jesus is Lord. Confession that is absent of faith in Jesus is not confession. Confession that is not heartfelt is empty confession. So we see that formula in verse number 10. We believe with our heart, then we confess with our mouth. And the heart is important because in the Jewish context, the heart was basically this literary symbol for the, 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 exist, our whole, the whole of human existence. It, it, it was where our, our, our love, our emotion, our purpose, our drive, our desire, our motivation, our thoughts, our will, everything flowed out of the heart. And so what he's saying is, I must believe with all that I am, holding nothing back that Jesus is the savior. Then we deal with the second thing, the resurrection. So I believe in my whole heart, what do I believe? That God raised him from the dead. That he's the savior and that God raised him from the dead. Why is that important? Why is the resurrection so important? because the resurrection of Christ at this time when it was written was still a very contentious thing. The Roman government had basically said Jesus is not in the tomb because his, his followers basically came in. They killed off two Roman, elite Roman assassins. They moved a boulder out of the way. They took his body and they took his body and buried it in an undisclosed location so that they could project this false story that Jesus rose from the dead. The problem is that 40 days after that, Jesus appeared to everybody. And they had these witnesses coming forth at pain of death, mind you, saying, I saw Jesus. He appeared to me. And every one of those testimonies were exactly the same. How he looked, what he said, what he did. He showed up. I didn't recognize him at first. He revealed himself to me. And then, boom, he was gone. Everyone was consistent with that. And so, outside of the proof, this is the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. Why is it so important? Because the Messiah was prophesied to defeat death in the grave. So Jesus, if he's the Lord, if he's the Savior, he must be living today. What does that mean for me? Why is the resurrection so important? Because, I mean, you know, we celebrate Easter. I accept this idea that Jesus rose from the dead. I I do. I don't understand how it all happened, but I trust it and I, I believe it. I believe it's part of Christianity. Why is it so important? First, because eternal salvation is eternally backed by an eternally living Savior. See, what good is it for me to say, I'm going to live forever in heaven if the one who gave me heaven didn't live forever? Right? How can Jesus offer an eternal, eternal gift if he's not going to be alive to back it? How ridiculous would it be to preach a message of eternal life if the one who offers it isn't powerful enough to live eternally himself? See, the death of Christ is a great testament to the love of God, but the resurrection of Christ is a testament to the power of that love. We must never take the resurrection out of the picture. See, it's the resurrection that separates Jesus and Christianity from all other religions and all other philosophies of all time. Only Jesus came to humanity for humanity, and only Jesus lives today to provide security and salvation. I say this all the time, especially on Easter. You can go to shrines and temples and tombs of religious icons and religious figures all over the world today, but if you go to the tomb of Jesus, you'll find that it's empty. All of the other shrines are still occupied. Jesus is alive, and that's what makes him different. That's what makes him Savior. That's what makes him Lord, and that's what makes him worthy of our faith. And that's what makes us desperate for him. We must have him. We must have him as our savior. The other thing that the resurrection means is that you can't just say that Jesus was a good person. You have to accept that he still is good and that the work he is doing today is still good and he has a holy purpose in what he's doing. And this is why the gospel changes everything. This is why the gospel isn't just a nice story about a historical figure. It's a story that includes us in the narrative that is still being written today. So you can trust a lot of people today but everyone's going to let you down. At some point, in some way, shape or form, the people you trust most in life, they're going to let you down or you're going to let them down too. Jesus never will. Never. Because he gets the right, the final analysis. So I realize that there's headlines of people saying they've left the faith or they no longer follow Christ. But the headline that we should be spouting and we should be preaching is that Jesus never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He never lets go of those who believe in him. He never, even when we struggle with our faith, he doesn't let go of us. Our faith may shake, it may quake, it may quiver, but the one that we have faith in never will. This is why once you receive the gospel... It's yours for eternity. Once you receive the gospel, you are saved forever. Once you receive the gospel, you don't have to do anything more to earn it or supersize it or enhance it. Because if you have Jesus, you have it all. One more thing about the importance of the resurrection is that Jesus' resurrection is passed off to us when we're dead in our sins. You see, we're not dead anymore when we come to know Christ we're raised to eternal life by him he passes that resurrection off to us and one day this mortal flesh is going to just like be gone and I I said this before I'm going to be so ripped in heaven man because I've had to deal with being so out of shape my whole life I'm going to be jacked man I'm going to have biceps my biceps are going to have biceps all right I'm at six-pack abs it's going to be awesome But that's because of the resurrection. I don't know. Whatever body God gives me, that's fine. All right. But that's just my image of it. It's going to be way better than this. All I have to say, right? The last thing we have to do, and this is how we close out this morning. I must confess Jesus is Lord. I must confess Jesus is Lord based upon a heart that believes in Jesus. And number three, I have to call on him for redemption and salvation. I have to call on him. What good is it to believe? What good is it to preach that Jesus is Lord? if I don't call on him for that gift. Romans chapter 10 verse 11. So the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love that part. The same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. See, the invitation to call on Jesus is repeated twice in these two verses. Why? Because repetition is the key. And in 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 ancient literature, repeating something like this so close together means don't miss this. Paul is saying, if you want to receive the gospel, you've got to receive the gospel. You can't just know it. You got to call. You got to receive it. It's like a Christmas time. What good is a gift if you just leave it under the tree and you never open it? It's like passing that gift all year long, seeing that with your name on it and never actually taking it and receiving it. This is the way many people are with the gospel. It's there, it's for them. They've heard it, but they have yet to call and receive it. If that's you, let today be the day that you open, and that you receive the gift. See, that word call gives the impression of summoning like somebody who is in danger or needs help, and that's what receiving the gospel is. That is realizing my need for a Savior, realizing that Jesus is the only one, and calling out specifically on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. I've talked to some people who say, oh yeah, I think I'm going to go to heaven, preacher. I think I am. Like, well, why do you think so? Well, because I went through a rough time back in the day, and I started going to church and it just just made me feel better. What have they not done yet? They have not called on the name of Jesus Christ. Not called on the name of Jesus Christ. The call to Jesus for salvation is the cry of the desperate who realizes there's nowhere else to turn. And we see another word that rhymes with the word call. And that's all, right? We see all repeated two times. All and everyone who calls. So this tells us who can receive the gospel Who's this message for? Everyone. Everyone. Does God know who's going to receive? Yes. But does he give us the opportunity? And does he want everyone to receive? Yes. He also says that God richly blesses all who calls. You know what that means? That word richly there? The word richly means that he gives us more than we would ever need. He doesn't just give us just enough. He gives us more than enough. And that richly means it it gives that picture of God sitting there just waiting to lavish his love on us if we call. Just waiting. Like, I am eager. I'm not going to hold it back. I'm not going to be stingy with it. I remember what I used to do with my brother. And I see it kind of replaying with my kids. If my brother would come and ask me for something and I'd I'd mess with him. You know, I'd be like, well, why should I give it to you? You know, God doesn't do that with us. We call on him and say, I want to be saved. And he's like, I've been waiting for this. And he welcomes us home. God richly blesses all who will call. We have to understand that all of these things are vital in receiving the gospel. See, it's not enough to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is the risen Savior. We have to call on him. It's not enough to just acknowledge and pray the prayer if we don't truly believe that Jesus can save us. Will you place your faith in him. And as we go into the conclusion, all this comes down to one question. How do I receive the gospel? Now the question is, will you receive it? Will I receive the gospel? Have you? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior? Say, well, I think I have. and You know, why isn't it good enough that I just come to church and I know all the stories? Because that's not the way Jesus designed it. See, Jesus is Lord, and the way he designed it was to trust him and to call on him. Will you call on him. I want to close with this one story as we, as we go to our time of invitation this morning. There was a grandfather that taught his granddaughter this huge lesson in faith and what it means to truly trust in Jesus and no one else. See, the grandfather had recently become a widower. His wife of like 60 years had passed away, and he was lonely and he lived away. His, his kids had moved, you know, had moved like three states away, and they had one granddaughter. And that granddaughter loved her grandparents dearly. And so after grandma died, the granddaughter came over and began to help grandpa go through some of grandma's things. So the granddaughter walked into the room that used to be her playroom when she was a little kid and it still hadn't been cleaned out. And as she was cleaning things out, she came across these little plastic beads. You know, the ones you get like, you know, around Mardi Gras time, you know, and you see those over at Party City, you know, those little plastic beads. And she she began to cry and it brought up a memory to her. And she ran across the hallway into the library where her grandfather was sitting by the fire and he was reading a book. And he said, Grandpa, look what I found. And he said, and she started going on and telling the story remembering remembering about, oh, I remember when me and grandma used to play dress up and used to play princess. And these were my royal jewels that I would wear. And she's like, I think I'm going to keep these if that's okay with you. And he looked at her and he said, sweetheart, those aren't worth anything. You should probably just throw them in the fire. And the little girl was kind of, or the, 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 the granddaughter who was getting ready to go off to college was like upset. You know, she's like, these mean a lot to me. And, but she looked at her grandfather and her grandfather was looking at her intently like, get rid of them. So out of love for her grandfather and wanting to, you know, be okay with him, she threw the beads in the fireplace that was already lit. And she walked out. A couple days later, it was time for, everything was done, and it was time for the granddaughter to go back home the next morning. She was getting on a plane to go back home and go off to college and do all those things. And they were sitting in the library, and they were sitting in these two chairs by the fire, and they were both reading. The grandfather got up out of his chair and walked over to his desk, and he got this big ornate box, and he brought it over, and he set it down on his granddaughter's lap sitting in the chair. She looked at him, and he said, this is yours. And she opened it up and inside of it was all of her grandmother's jewelry. Even the wedding set that the grandmother had worn up until the day she died. He said, all of this is yours now. And she looked up at him kind of crying and and wondering, what in the world is this about? Don't you want any of this? And he said, I want you to understand this that that day that I told you a couple days ago when I told you that those beads were worthless and you should throw them in the fire, you could have told me that I was insensitive. You could have told me I didn't understand. You could have told me that I didn't, I didn't appreciate what, she, what, what you appreciated. But instead, because you loved me and because you trusted me, you threw those beads in the fire. And today, I'm giving you something far more precious. This isn't just a memory that you enjoyed with your grandmother. You can now have all of your grandmother's jewels. And he went over and he sat down in the chair and he looked at his granddaughter and he said this. He said, uh, You are the apple of my eye, but I want you to understand something very important. There is someone who loves you far more than I do. And there is someone who will give you something far more precious than what I've just given you, but he requires the same thing that you trust him enough. To trade in everything you hold dear. To trust in something that is far more precious. And when you do that. You get far more than you've ever realized. He taught her a lesson in faith. On what faith is. And what saving faith is. I abandon everything that I thought was precious. That I think is good. That's one day going to burn up anyway. And I trust the one thing that's lasting. That's Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. It's not just, hey... I'm going to add Jesus to my life and be, because I'm good and I'll be better if I add Jesus and then I get heaven on top of what I'm already getting. No, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins and everything is worth the fire. But Jesus, if you'll trust him, he'll redeem you and give you something far more precious. That's the gospel. That's how we receive it. We've got to let go of everything else and trust in him. As we bow our head and as we close our eyes this morning, I ask this morning, if you know Christ as your Savior, I know just about everybody in this room, I know you have a testimony that you've trusted Christ, but I want to ask you this, are you trusting Christ and Christ alone? If you're holding on to something else, you're not holding on to Jesus. Have you trusted him today? Let today be the day that you trust Christ. If you need Jesus as your Savior this morning, the Bible says if we will call on him, to be our Lord if we will repent of our sins and trust Him He will save us Thank you for listening today At Graceway our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the contact us section or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.